the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are as a whole capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to Serve to Lead. I'm your host, James Strock. As we get started, may I ask a favor? If you find value in this podcast, please give us a high rating on iTunes and connect via Twitter at James Strock or via our website, servetolead.org. With us today is a longtime friend and a popular, highly respected commentator on international relations and American national security, Derek Liebart. Derek Liebart has written an important and well-received new book, Grand Improvisation, America Confronts the British Superpower, 1945 to 1957. Derek Liebart, welcome to Serve to Lead. Thank you very much, Jim. I've followed your work for many years and I'm honored to be interviewed. Thank you. Very honored to have you. And Derek, let's start with a question. You have a very unique background in that you work directly in national defense, including as a consultant to the U.S. Department of Defense, and then you have tremendous knowledge of history. How do you respond to someone who might say, why in the year 2019 would a history of the relationship between the U.S. and U.K. from the 20th century be relevant? Absolutely spot on. And that's the question I had to answer when proposing this book to Farrar Strauss. It's because today, as we are shifting global alignments, whether alliances or the rise and fall of other superpowers, one can draw parallels and indeed even lessons from the tumult of those dozen years after World War II. Now, the U.S. was, of course, born from a revolution, or some might see it almost as a secession from the British Empire. We've always had an anti-imperialist strand in our public discussion, maybe even in our DNA. Would you describe America today as an empire? No, I wouldn't, because I don't see it fitting the criteria of an empire. For example, Empires require coercive presence. An empire by any but the loosest of definitions is that we are there, we're the boss, we're not going anywhere. And I think we can agree that the United States rarely exercises its power that crudely. The second of three points is that an empire, by and large, gets its way from client nations. That has never been the U.S. experience. For example, whether it's South Vietnam or Taiwan or Israel or indeed European states today, it's not as if the U.S. can exercise imperial power. Quite the contrary. Often we're responding to the demands of states that are mere clients. And the third reason I'd argue we're not an empire is because empires require imperial cadres. 
in the British Empire was Exhibit A. Imperial cadres were people with lifetime training in the arts of imperial governance. America, with its happy-go-lucky political appointee system of political patronage, certainly doesn't have anything like an ongoing cadre that could assure the success of an empire. So those are the three reasons that I stay away from defining the U.S. today as an empire. Well, one other question along those lines, Derek Liebart, would you consider the U.S. to be a hyperpower, as some people have called it? Well, a hyperpower, a superpower, to be sure, we have rivaled military force and we have unprecedented economic clout. But how is that exercised and leveraged in the world of 2020? Not quite as easily, perhaps, as in the good old days of the robust British Empire. Now, to look back at the start of my story in 1945, of course, when the war ended, the U.S. had an, it had unprecedented industrial weight, and it did have a large military, which we quickly drew down. Russia, for its point, had the greatest army history has ever seen in the Red Army. But a superpower has a specific academic definition, and that involves global deployment. It involves having a tentacular intelligence service, and it requires being on the cutting edge of military technology and also globally deployed alliances everywhere. The U.S. certainly did not have that in 1945, 46, 47. We came to world power only pretty slowly. And the British Empire, in contrast, had that global deployment. It certainly had high-tech military preeminence with jet aviation. And it had a global web of alliances. And what occurred in the dozen years after World War II is a pretty rough abrasion between the rising American superpower globally and the British, who certainly defined themselves as a superpower until the era of Suez in 1956. If I could add one more point, Jim, for your listeners, we have to recall that it was only then in late 56, January 1957, that Dwight Eisenhower, in coordination with Secretary of State John Foster Dulles and the very powerful Vice President Richard Nixon, only then did the three of them offer what they called a declaration of independence from British authority. They were very explicit in this. And it was Nixon who made the statement. It was Dulles who ratified and approved the statement. And then the statement was made again. It was America's declaration of independence from British authority in deciding global affairs. 
And a final point that Richard Nixon makes in his memoirs is that only at that point, 57, did the U.S. assert itself as a world power and truly come to global political military preeminence. Well, Derek, among the many virtues of your book are the pocket portraits of leading figures of that post-war period. For example, you recover what perhaps regrettably are long forgotten personages such as James Webb, who led NASA to its greatest achievements. So too John Wesley Snyder, Lewis Douglas, Malcolm McDonald. You also illuminate less notice aspects of more familiar personalities, including, including the British Foreign Secretary, Ernest Bevin, and the American Secretaries of State, Dean Acheson and John Foster Dulles. What is your purpose in directing attention to these individuals as you paint the picture of the broader world scene? First, let me note how humbling it is for the historian to encounter these individuals who in their time stood so tall against the sky. They were giants of the moment, yet today, barely more than a lifetime later, really no one has any idea who they were. And Dulles Airport, Jim, through which you and I travel constantly, who remembers that it's named after Eisenhower's Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles? So one observation is that humbling element for the writer that these giants are completely forgotten no matter what they accomplished. Two, I want to draw attention to the fact that the most influential figures oftentimes in history are not those we know even today, that we even remember. Dean Acheson is relatively well known because he wrote his sparkling Pulitzer Prize winning memoirs in 1969, present at the creation. Yet so much of what's in those memoirs is fanciful and exaggerated. But nonetheless, as Churchill said, those who write history are going to define history. Though Atchison is theatrical with glittering memoirs, but he would not be the key influential figure of that era as commonly thought. Ditto the diplomat George Kennan, who has a preposterously outsized reputation today. Why is Kennan remembered and credited with so much that he had little to do with? It's because he defined the history, he wrote the books, he was an excellent writer, although a bumbling diplomat, and literary men have adopted him and have given him an outside reputation. So time and again, the most influential figures are forgotten or obscured or overshadowed. Well, to that point, of course, a number of those people, such as Dean Acheson or Dulles, while we've forgotten them perhaps or remember them wrongly today, they were very prominent in their time. Are there Utterly people today so. who are playing these roles either that we're aware of and don't appreciate or that we just aren't aware of and should appreciate? Well, so often these reputations can be identified only in hindsight. 
Let's not forget how reviled both Atchison and Dulles, who otherwise agreed on little, were at the time that they served as Secretary of State. Time and time again, they were accused of being bumblers and inept. And no one at the time could recognize the overarching impact that it turns out they would have, such as in developing and upholding the U.S. alliance system. On the other hand, there are the quiet men, and we see this in business as well. A man such as John Wesley Snyder, Truman's closest advisor, who didn't have sharp elbows, who wrote no glittering memoir, who just quietly, dutifully did his homework, and ultimately to whom so many of these bold-faced names reported. It was his decision for Truman to hire Atchison as Secretary of State. It was he who appointed the celebrated John McCloy to the World Bank. And time and time again, one sees quietly influential people having an enormous impact that goes unrecognized until the historian can delve into the archives. An underlying message, Derek, from your fine book is just how precarious empires or the reach of a dominant power can be. For example, heading into the Second World War, the United Kingdom had about one quarter of the world's landmass under its flag and about a quarter of the population. Yet within a decade after the victory, in quotes, of the Second World War, they were wrapping up their imperial position. What do you think that tells us, if anything, about the United States and its position today? Well, it would be one big warning flag that we can't delude ourselves about what we can accomplish. We have to have some humility in what we try to achieve internationally. For example, we can't believe that everyone everywhere wants to be just like us. We can't democratize Iraq, let alone Afghanistan overnight, for instance. Nor can we have magic bullet high-tech solutions to international problems, such as the silliness of hearing pundits talk about a surgical strike on Iran. How is that, in fact, going to play out? Time and time again, Americans have too much faith in their technologies to create the political military situations they aspire to overseas. Vietnam, for instance, was going to be such a cinch because of helicopter airborne forces that we could deploy. And in the Iraq invasion of 2003, we had net-centric warfare. And time and again, we delude ourselves by being able to think that exercising power globally, as we now do, will be a lot easier than it turns out to be. In Grand Improvisation, Derek Liebard, you point out that Chinese strategists are dedicating sustained, systematic attention to comprehending the arc 
of modern great powers or empires, including the U.S. and Great Britain. What are they seeing and what can we see from learning, what can we learn from seeing ourselves through the eyes of a rising 21st century global competitor? You're entirely correct. Chinese scholars, diplomats, foreign policy officials devote a lot of time to translating most every relevant book on the rise and fall of empires into Chinese and then studying them seriously. That certainly includes most writings on the British Empire. They're fascinated by what became of the one-time greatest empire in history. They translate books as well about the collapse of the Soviet Union. What can be seen in China now is a great sensitiveness to trying to understand history. Whether they get it right or not is another question, but they do pay a great deal of attention to and history. And that can't be said so easily for the way that Americans conduct foreign policy. So many of the decision-making positions, whether on the National Security Council or in the Pentagon at state, are very brand new, fresh political appointees, which means relatively amateurish. Now, political patronage is not necessarily bad. It can bring fresh perspectives to old problems. But time and again, there is an overlooking of history in the American experience of international practice. And that's why time and time again, in my judgment, we keep making the same mistakes. So I would offer a plea in summary for those on the NSC, those political appointees and assistant secretaries, uh, whether it's state or the Pentagon, to steep themselves in history even if they're lawyers or business people or political campaign apparatchiks, just get the history right and see what there can be learned from it. Well, a couple of follow-ups on that, Derek. One is that history appears to be in decline in the U.S. in terms of academics. Uh, many universities have declining enrollments in history. At the same time, there's rising interest, it appears, in popular history and narrative history, how can we improve in that way? You're entirely right. And that is a fascinating paradox that neither the academics nor the popular historians have been able to answer. The, uni the universities, I was going to say the top universities, but one can generalize and say most American universities have vastly cut back on their history departments. And when there is a serious history department, rarely, rarely does it have a scholar who is teaching U.S. diplomatic history, for example. There are other variations of history, perhaps equally important, whether it's ethnic history or economic history, but there is essentially no teaching in U.S. academia about diplomatic, let alone 
military history. It's seen as too old-fashioned. So one easy-to-make recommendation is perhaps if the teaching of history were better, it could have all the appeal of, say, the great books of a David McCullough. And a final point, again, as a writer of history, is there's nothing more heartbreaking than talking to a young person who says that he or she doesn't like history or doesn't get history. Because, as you know, Jim, and we all agree, the best history is exciting storytelling. And that's what the the great writers, such as the David McCullough, excel at. That we learn when we're entertained and when we're engaged. And what really should entertain and engage us more than these stories? But I fear that the the academic historians, as we've experienced them in the classroom, oftentimes don't engage the students sufficiently, or they give them cliches about containment or cliches about American destructiveness around the world and so forth. Well, and let's return a moment to the related point you made about so-called elites, if I might use that term for it, people who have systematically been given opportunity to develop applicable expertise in international affairs, including strategy and all the related areas. How do you balance that with the fact that in recent decades, people have understandably turned very much against so-called elites who've taken us into misbegotten wars, who botched the financial crisis and so on. How do we work past this? Well, that's a two-part question. How did we get into that predicament and then how do we get past it? I would say we very understandably got into it to look at foreign policy, that the best and the brightest as the decision makers of the Kennedy and Johnson administrations were called, the best and the brightest brought us into Vietnam with 58,000 plus dead and a ruinous stagflation to follow. And other bright people as recently as 2003, as we know, brought us into Iran. Very, very little homework was done. These cataclysmic decisions who could define the difference between, say, Sunni and Shia in 2003 or 2004? Essentially, no one. Deputy Secretary of Defense in 2006, before the Senate Armed Services Committee, couldn't estimate, gosh, within 40% how many Americans had been killed in Iraq. So time and time again, we end up winging it. And the we oftentimes are the elites. How do we get beyond this? I would say by having a much humbler, more modest approach to international relations. Not to presume that we can alter the world overnight or fine tune the planet. When we do, when we have those illusions, by and large, they don't work. We draw false historical parallels, for example, when we talk about 
a Marshall Plan for Afghanistan or a Marshall Plan for Central America. That's not the way it works, those apples and oranges. Derek Levart, why is it in your judgment, based on your in-depth knowledge of the world today as well as history, that the American architects of, for example, the Iraq adventure have never apologized and never led or taken part in a public discussion of what can be learned in the humble way that you're referring to? Because for more than a generation, we have repeated the same mistakes in the same way, using the same sound bites. One can track this back to Vietnam, the same assumptions of how simple it would be. We would defeat the Viet Cong within six months, circa 1964, when we went in big. Similarly, Iraq would be such a cinch. I think it was a six weeks to dominating Iraq and then returning. Time and time again, we think it's going to be so easy. And with all humility, all perspective, and this belief that we can fine-tune such complexity gets us into these ghastly predicaments. But that, if I can just add, begs the question, why do we think that way? It's not because we're evil. It's not even because we're arrogant. We think this way because we're Americans. If we can build a 20 trillion plus economy, surely we can manage international problems. Sure, we can manage other countries all for their own good. So we bring these embedded assumptions that we are terrific managers to international problems, and then we get it wrong. Or again, we believe that other people truly do want to be like us. So we're not exercising such power or getting into these predicaments because we're bad. It is because really as a nation of immigrants, we oftentimes turn our back on the rest of the world. So many Americans came here to get away from the international turmoil of the planet. And rarely do we devote the attention and the study to understand what might be going on in Indochina or in the Middle East. Derek, it's reported that the U.S. maintains nearly 800 military bases in approximately 70 countries and territories, and we spend more on national defense than the combination of China, Saudi Arabia, India, France, Russia, the United Kingdom, and Germany. What do you think of this? And what do you think about the fact that in the recent debates, no matter how polarized the political parties are, there's almost no serious discussion of anything other than working around the corners, one and two percent overall changes in the defense budget. What's going on here? There is a refusal to understand that less can be more. And one can see this in special forces combat, for example. Less can be more, which makes 
so many of these political debates about bloating up the Pentagon budget all the more or buying the latest high-tech gizmo, it makes these debates rather silly. It's like American obesity. Having more, 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 spending more, more, more doesn't translate to physical fitness or to effectiveness. So here again, we're not looking at the basics. How much of the global presence, for example, of the U.S., can truly be counterproductive? Do we need these 11 carrier groups? Do we need those 800 bases? Might we be more effective with less? Those fundamental questions, which, say, a business analyst might ask herself if she's looking at a balance sheet for a multinational corporation, those questions are never asked in the political arena because it's too easy to be branded by your opponent as unpatriotic if you want to cut the military budget or to reduce, say, the U.S. presence in, you know, outer Somalia or what have you. The basics here are not being addressed. We're into these habits, and as you observe, Jim, we only discuss them on the margins. So if the country had a big wake-up call and said, we're going to walk away from all these presidential candidates we see for 2020, all 20-plus of them in both parties, and we're going to all agree to have Derek Liebart become president for international affairs and defense. What would you do? I would talk with my advisors, the most eminent one of them certainly to be you, and I would say, Jim, we cannot forget how insular the United States of America is. We are a continental-sized nation with enormous energy, vitality, newness every week here in the U.S. We're an immigrant nation, and we are by and large an insular people. That has changed very, very little, I'd argue, over the lifetime, past lifetime. So if you and I at the Pentagon make these grand decisions to bring democracy to Afghanistan or Iraq, we need to keep in mind the inherent insularity of our fellow citizens and one, recognize that we're unlikely to get it right, and two, that the nation might not stick with us for more than a few years waiting for us to get it right. Well, we often think of Winston Churchill, that is we, most people, certainly Americans, as a war leader, but as you point out in the book, he was much more than that over his 90 years. And in 1901, when he was a young member of parliament, he said, I see little glory in an empire which can rule the waves and is unable to flush its own sewers. Is the United States moving into that kind of warning situation with our infrastructure problems, our inability to get big projects done? Meanwhile, the defense sector continues just to roll along, taking a disproportionate amount of our national product? What a marvelous quote. I'd never heard that before, but it sums up 
so much about England of those earlier times and about America today. And let's remind ourselves of the shock in July 1945 when Churchill himself was booted from office after being a triumphant figure of the World War II victory. It's because England itself wanted to change. It wanted better living conditions. It wanted access to national health and to education. So to be sure, losing sight on the home front is terribly dangerous. Let's forget that when John Kennedy came to office in his ringing inaugural address asking all of us to bear any burden and pay any price, that inaugural address was wholly focused on the excitements of foreign policy. It was a foreign policy address. Nothing said about poverty, civil rights, and the like. It was all about the excitements of overseas adventures. And therein is a lot of peril and a likelihood that in time the American public will disprove of their elites. And it's certainly a historical warning that so many of our presidents, certainly in the 20th century, who intended to be domestic presidents ended up being dominated in turn by foreign policy or the reverse. You're entirely right. And in our conversation, we can't forget that, of course, there are global perils to the United States. And there are many times when we have to be alert and we must engage. And there are times when only military power judiciously exercised will work. But to use military power, to use the blunt force of America might as the first response is terribly, terribly short-sighted, probably for America more so than anyone else, given that we are so insular and that we don't have even a robust foreign service. The short-sightedness of what America is doing right now, speaking of the foreign service, is the extent to which our sound professional diplomatic corps is shrinking and underfunded. Why would that be? One would think we would want to devote nearly as many resources to diplomacy and the foreign service as we do to the military. But the military has pride of place. And many domestic constituencies. And many, many constituencies. Living in Washington, as you have and I now do, you're soaked in advertising. Probably don't see that in much of the rest of America, but in DC, you see newspaper ads, radio ads, TV ads for the F-35 jet fighter, jet fighter for the uh, you know, offshore littoral ships for you name it. All kinds of high-tech gear is advertised right there in the press. And, they're not aiming at a casual reader like me, but they're advertising to Congress and showing their wares. And if one is concerned about constituents and manufacturing in your district, sure, it's easy to sign on and to support 
the Pentagon budget, especially if your opponent is going to accuse you of being unpatriotic for not doing so. But on and on and on. And it's utterly, as you know, bipartisan. Republicans are no worse than Democrats. Absolutely. And Derek, if you could summarize in a sentence or two what you would like listeners to take away from your outstanding book, Grand Improvisation, which hopefully they will also read and enjoy and learn from, what would those sentences or a short message be? Don't underestimate the complexity of global power. Keep in mind that less can be more. It's unlikely to be as easy as we think. And let's scrutinize ourselves about the misguided assumptions that we so often have. If we see ourselves repeating the same mistakes decade after decade after decade, it's unlikely that we're doing things right. And a final observation, and this is very different from the British Empire, but a final observation is the insularity of the American experience. We're a thrilling, exciting, enormous continent. And to go off chasing foreign adventures and hunting overseas dragons so often can be counterproductive. Derek, what books have been particularly influential in your thinking over time, in addition, of course, to the brilliant books you've written, but books that have influenced you that you'd recommend to others? I would recommend recent writings by the scholar and former military officer, Andrew Basevich. He, for instance, has written brilliantly on the Middle East and on the American military. I'd recommend also books by another scholar, University of Chicago, John Wersheimer. These are serious, serious students of military affairs, political military affairs especially. They're not having their nose against the window pane for Washington appointments. They are definitely doing their homework. And you'll see in their writings, as well as in many others, the themes that I am merely stating is uh, what should be the received wisdom. And then there are the classics, of course, Jim, you cited Churchill and so forth. And in those writings of history, whether one disagrees with the details, you can get the verve and the excitement of international conflict. But the reason I suggest recent writings such as those by Basevich and Mearsheimer is because we're reminded again and again for the, the need for humility that it ain't going to be as easy as we think and that we can't fine-tune the planet. And as a start on Basevich and Mearsheimer, they're very much present on YouTube if people want to check out some of their lectures. Derek, what do you look at day in, day out amidst all the information that comes out in this world of ours online? Are there a few websites or publications that are sort of go-to for you? Well, I fear that as a writer, I spend too much time perhaps in the archives. So I read the daily press, of course. One has to do it in DC. I don't have a television, so I'm saved having to live through the K 
cable stations. I listen a lot to radio, oftentimes what's called right-wing radio. And I had an interview with Brian Lamb on C-SPAN, and he said, do you really listen to that? And I said, of course I listen to it, because we can't just read the New York Times without listening to commentators such as Hugh Hewitt or Rush Limbaugh or Take Your Pick. One has to understand the immense diversity of opinion in America. Derek, how can listeners best follow and connect with you through social media? Gosh, I might be a bit behind the times there because in addition to writing, I spend a good bit of time in business. So I would encourage anyone who's interested just to email me direct, and I'm happy to dialogue over email, which I guess sounds pretty primitive these days. Not at all. Could you share the email? Sure. The best email for me is dlebart, and D is in Derek, and the last name is L-E-E, B is in Boston, A-E-R-T, at skcsoft.com. That's a software company. Stands for Social Knowledge Creation Software. So SKC Soft. And I usually can respond within 24 hours. Wonderful. Well, Derek Liebart, thank you so much. And congratulations again on your tremendous, highly readable, brilliantly conceived new book, Grand Improvisation America Confronts the British Superpower, 1945 to 1957. And also thanks to you, our listeners, for being with us. Please rate us highly on iTunes, follow us on Twitter at James Strzok, and connect via our website, servetolead.org.